Hey everyone out there in podcast land, Teddy here to introduce another episode in the series. Today's guest is more oriented toward the lessons in life rather than leadership. A bit more personal for me. My pal Bruce King is like that proverbial brother from another mother. Bruce is a leading researcher, author, and advocate for carbon sequestration, which happens to be the name of his recently published second book. It's a way to slow the accumulation of greenhouse gases, which are released by the burning of fossil fuels. It's both important and timely work. But that's not why I asked Bruce to join me for this podcast. Like myself, Bruce has a long-term meditation practice with a diverse background in a number of different modalities. He's deeply committed to his practice, and though we haven't lived in the same zip code for many years, whenever our paths cross, we naturally fall into a space of inspiring one another as practitioners along the path. But wait, there's more. We're also both parenting, along with our wives, adult children with a developmental disability, and that's a very unique club no one is breaking down the door to get into. So we share our experiences, our wonder, and most of all, our appreciation for whatever it is in front of us in the moment. Humans being more than humans doing. And hello, everyone. Teddy Tannenbaum here with another edition of Teddy Talk Podcast. Our theme is meetings with remarkable people, lessons in leadership and life. You probably know by now, if you've been following the podcast, that I have a lot of pals, a lot of old pals, and a lot of, you know, old people. <laughs> Today, <laughs> nobody uh, older than me. Oh, no, a couple of people older than me, but here we go. Today, a delight. We are with uh, dear friend Bruce King. A sprightly youth. Sprightly youth, Bruce King. And we are at a retreat center called Xanabu in the hills above Malibu. Sitting outside, you may hear some sounds of nature along with the mellifluous tones of <laughs> Bruce and myself. <laughs> oh boy, uh, got a lot of things I want to talk to Bruce about today. We'll talk about Bruce's background and his uh, unique abilities. And then, you know, we have some other things that we have in common, uh, mostly meditation and raising children with developmental disabilities. But we're going to start off with some of the career choices. So, Bruce, welcome. Thank you. Here we are, Here me we and are. you, buddy. We've been pals for, I don't know, 45 years. <laughs> <laughs> Who's that old? Yeah. Wild. So, I thought, you know, we start, just let the audience know a little about your background and uh, kind of some of the chosen fields you've decided to uh, put your energies towards. Why don't you share with that? Well, I went to engineering school f 45 years, 40 years ago and uh, studied engineering, became a structural engineer. Never quite sure why I was doing it because it didn't quite fit in there. I never quite fit in real well anywhere. But I loved the rigor of it and I like science and math and so on. And I went out and started working and one thing led to another, and I ended up stumbling into a wonderful scene with the nascent green building movement, and working with a lot of interesting people who were around me in the San Francisco Bay Area, and ended up writing a book, and then another book, and now it's become a habit, and nobody can stop me. <laughs> but um, And I'm having a great time, because I found a way to use what I had learned in school to do some good stuff. Uh, I work with cool people, and... Um, 
As for example, yeah. to go fly to another continent and have somebody come up to you and say, when you said this 10 years ago, it changed my life. That's pretty satisfying. Yeah. But how you and I know each other, of course, Ted, is through meditation and following a teacher. And when I came to Guru Maharaji, I was already a meditator. I had, I had been introduced to transcendental meditation in 1969, here in, near here in Santa Barbara. I had just arrived in America with the Beatles. And Maharishi Mahesh Yogi was on the cover of Life, I think. Mm -hmm. And uh, this teacher came to our high school and initiated us. And I started practicing the way she said. And uh, I had some extraordinary experiences, enough to sort of jolt me. And no drugs were involved. I was <laughs> doing plenty of drugs like everybody was doing around me that, at that time and growing up in California in the 60s and 70s. But um, this was without any uh, pharmaceutical aid. I had these powerful experiences and went on to live my life and do a whole bunch of things. But, um, but meditation's been a it remained line. with me as a core. And I it didn't become a regular habit until around 73, and I was reading books on Zen Buddhism, and there's a wonderful Zen center then and still now in San Francisco where I started hanging out with wonderful people. A very colorful group, just as the ones that you and I hung out with, because yeah. uh, it attracts people who are cut from a different bolt, you might say, or, or that's not even the right word. Yeah. They were just cool people. Well, a certain kind of person uh, would have gotten attracted to a meditative practice back in those days. <clears throat> Excuse me. Yeah, and we weren't uh, unusual, right? No, it seemed it seemed quite common. As a matter of fact, there right. was. If you go back and trace the history of it, uh, in that period in the late sixties, early seventies, there was a plethora of uh, Eastern based teachers right. who were very appealing to a group of disaffected Western youth, yes. both in the U.S. and and uh, Western Europe, and of course other parts of the world. Tell me, with TM, when when you got involved with TM. Talk about your initial experience there. What was what was unique about it? What was different about it than your day-to-day -day prior to? Well, I'd never had a meditation experience before. Um, and there wasn't any group. The teacher came to the school once a week, I think, and we'd sit with her and we'd meditate and she'd talk and answer our questions. But all I, my real takeaway, what I remember was on a few occasions, going off to sit alone in a room uh, as per the recommendation for 20 minutes and practicing this right. mantra meditation and just having a feeling of great spaciousness and peacefulness. Um, kind of your Life Magazine meditation experience in a way. But it was so surprising and refreshing to me that it sure stuck with me. And then I had to finish you know, my youthful growing up and trying everything that there was to be tried. But there came a very distinct moment in my life when um, you could say it was made clear to me that my time with drugs was done, my time with a lot of things was done, and I should just focus on this because it was the coolest thing I knew. Right. And I felt like I'd traveled and read and experimented en enough that I had a pretty good sense of what was available to me, and this was the coolest thing. Right. So that's what I started focusing on, and I haven't received any countermanding suggestions from the universe in the <laughs> ensuing 40 years. So sometimes... You try something, it works, you stick with it. Right. I know you spent some time uh, sitting in Zazen in San Francisco. Yes. And tell us about that experience. Well, I did then, and I and I sort of am now again. I'm part of a, a, a wonderful Zen group in uh, Marin County, Everyday Zen with Norman Fisher. And I don't remember so much about it back then. Uh, I would go to the weekly lectures, and I would practice Zen in my 
home. It was very, very informal, not really part of a group. Now I'm a little more affiliated, and this particular group is a bunch of people who are mostly older than me. A lot of there are Holocaust survivors, there are wow. theater people, poets, scientists, psychologists. Very, very interesting group of people, each of whom in their own way happens to have discovered the same thing I did, that there is something with us always that is the coolest thing you could ever find. And to go keep looking for it in the world is is uh, futile yeah. and will make you nuts. <laughs> I, don't, I don't like, you know, our teacher used to always say it's within you. The truth is within you, and what you want is within And it never worked for me. Somehow, poetically, it just didn't work for me, but it is always present. And as you've understood, too, if I'm happy, if I'm sad, if I'm angry, if I'm fast, if I'm slow, if if it's sunny, if it's cloudy, it's always here. And that's what I've got become interested in. I remember in years back, we used to say things like, peace is more than just the absence of war. Yes. Right? It's it's not an absence, it's a presence. And I remember one of our teachers in India used to say that uh, true happiness is just to have a satisfied mind. Yes. And these days, you know, mindfulness meditation practice, which is really the heart of Buddhism, is uh, is quite prominent. It's gone quite mainstream, hasn't it? Yes. It's right. uh, <laughs> it is uh, it's taught seemingly everywhere. Right. And of course, once it, anything goes mainstream, it becomes a lightning rod for criticism and uh, diminishing, right? Of course, that doesn't take away from the experience that people who practice have, right? Right. It, it, I know that in conversations you and I have had before, we couldn't care less what other people thought right. about the experience that we had. Right. No one can take away your experience. Right. right. So that's one of the things I've learned over the years, that this is a somewhat of a, a private, personal uh, refuge, and yet I remember the first time I went to India, I was sitting by the by the Ganges up in the Himalayas, in the foothills of the Himalayas, meditating, and one of our teachers came by, and and he was acknowledging us there, and he said, are you enjoying yourselves? And of course, yeah, this is fantastic. And I remember him saying, you know, anybody can come and sit by the river Ganges in the foothills of the Himalayas and have a wonderful experience of meditation, try doing this in New York City. I thought, oh my goodness, no, not really. That's where I'd come from. He said, yeah. no, that's where you got to go back to. Yes. So it was my first recognition that the experience really was internal and I carried it with me wherever I went. And it didn't matter really yes. where you were. Yeah. Having, having lived in the ashram, I love the I love the experience that I found in 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 sitting and in meditating and I so I moved in the ashram not really out of religious fervor but just because well what if I just eliminated everything else that I could out of my life and just focused on this and I'm glad I did that just like you right yeah and I don't wish to be doing it now yeah and in fact you know raising children and having a business is far more challenging far far more t- but. I'm fortunate enough to just see it's all the same thing now. I don't like wish. I wish I could go away and just be on retreat and meditate all the time. I don't wish I were anywhere else. I'm, right. I suppose that's the benefit of doing this for a while is you just stop wishing things were other than the way they are. And you start recognizing everything I need is right here. It sounds so trite and cliche. It really, But it is. It is. 
and uh, you start letting go of the steering wheel a little bit and relaxing a little bit. So when, as I was telling you a moment ago, my brother-in-law was saying, so how, how much do you meditate? I said, oh, an hour or two every morning. He goes, wow, that's really disciplined. And I was really kind of surprised to hear it because I uh, no, is well, it's discipline like being able to jump in a swimming pool on a hot day, like as I ran. It, it, I really never even think, I can't imagine not doing it because I'd go nuts. And it's just, it's just the pleasure of enjoying your life. It's not exotic or mystic or sometimes it is actually, but it's just enjoying your life. Yes. Who wouldn't want to do this? And yet, I don't know, people do what they do. Yeah, everyone makes a choice. Yeah. I, I know that uh, for myself, when I was first introduced to the idea of a meditative practice, uh, it was pretty novel. You know, yes. I, <clears throat> I had read, I was a, a reader, so I read a book. Actually, it was from, a, you know, from drugs that led me to an experience that led me to understand, huh, this might be available to me without the drugs. Yes. That, I was curious about that. So I remember reading, doing some research, read a book about it. And then I thought, that book's interesting. Let's look at the bibliography. And I got those books. And I read those books. And I looked at those bibliographies. And I read those books. And I remember I was traveling a lot in the U.S., you know, hitchhiking around the country quite a bit. And just carrying with me all these various books that I would pick up. And eventually, they led me. The path got quite narrow for me when I realized, oh, yeah, there's a particular message here. And I had no idea what was going to happen until I had the experience of a, a meditation practice with a teacher. And then all these things opened up to me. And then I made some choices. Like you lived in an ashram environment, spiritual community, wonderful support, and found myself uh, in a lot of, doing a lot of community service. And found myself being in positions of leadership, which is how a, a lot of my later career evolved. And then that period of life ended, but the experience didn't end, just what was out here ended, yes. right? So as you said, yes. you take it with you and you move on to whatever's next. In your case, you know, the work you've done around uh, eco-building and uh, I think you, did, you wrote a book on straw bale housing, yeah. you've written about carbon sequestration and, and you know, that's uh, amazing stuff to help give back to the, the body of knowledge in the planet. So it's not that meditation takes us away from the world, just gives us a different perspective as we engage with the world. Right. In fact, I would say it's the opposite of causing retreat from the world. You don't just sit around with drool going down your chin saying everything is beautiful. <laughs> you know. You can, well, that might happen someday too. From time to time. <laughs> and we're getting older, so. <laughs> but you do, you get up and you say, oh, maybe I could help out here. You see somebody, somebody's in pain, just like a mother with a child. Yeah. You can't help it. That's what you do. You jump up. We used to say satsang service and meditation, right? Which it became so cliche we didn't. But that's what I was, I was fortunate to under, understand when I was young. It's taken me a while to get the hang of it, but meditation meaning under, know who you are, what awareness is. Let your awareness rest on itself, on awareness. This is something human beings can do. If whales or dolphins or other creatures can, I don't know, but we can. Yeah. And it's cool. And then Satsang is a fancy way, and a lovely Sanskrit term is too difficult to unpack fully, but hang out with people who are pointed the same way yeah. and help each other. Yeah. And service, be available to people. 
Don't be a fool. You know, the more you try to make everything just right for yourself, the more screwed up you get. It's just all, it seems so obvious, and yet we fall in that trap all the time. And I do too, every day. But um, I'm just so relieved to have found the path. Yeah, found a path. Exactly. Even to say the path, it, it, it's, it's fraught with overtones that I don't really need anymore. Like, yeah. hey, I'm on the path, and you're not on the path, <laughs> or we're on the path. No, it's not like that. It's just find your own self, to recover your own self. My old te Zen teacher would say, if you won't sit down and be still for a few minutes, how can God wake up and remember who he is? <laughs> <laughs> yes. I, and and uh, which reminds me actually of... of uh, a quote from the mathematician Pascal, who said that something to the effect of all the problems of the world could be solved if man could learn to sit quietly and alone in a room for a while. Yes. So that's, that's a challenge right there. In, in our lives, and you know, we, we met through uh, meditation, we met through service, and as our lives evolved, and that period of time ended, and we took our practice and went back into the world, as it were. We also had a, another common experience, and that was uh, finding ourselves raising a child with a developmental disability. So, I, I, I would like to say I don't know about you, but, though I do know about you, and, and I know for myself that without that practice and that foundation, that experience of parenting a child with a, a developmental disability would have been completely different. Yeah. Right? So let's spend some time sharing a little bit about our individual experiences sure. uh, yeah. in that environment. Yeah. My first, uh, our first child, Tyler, who is now 26, um, was born with Fragile X Syndrome. Uh, which is the leading cause of mental, I don't know what the right word, we used to call it mental retardation, but that's term's too fraught and isn't used anymore. Intellectual disability. And it can be so mild in a person that they're still a very high-functioning person and doing all sorts of things in the world and all that, or be so severe that you're a vegetable, and Tyler's somewhere in the middle of all that. But he can't uh, take care of himself. He can't live on his own. Um so that was a curveball in life, and uh, many attempts to have another child on our part. A lot of unpleasant times, a lot of miscarriages, and a lot of this and a lot of that, and we ended up adopting the little girl who sits across from me now, 21 years old and engrossed in her phone, because <laughs> she's an all-American girl. <laughs> but raising Tyler was, uh, of course, it's completely a curveball. The analogy we often use, you think you're going on vacation in Rome and turns out you're going to Amsterdam. And you can either freak out about that and complain and go, or you can say, okay, cool, Amsterdam, check it out. So we're in Amsterdam and we're, we're loving Amsterdam. And in fact, and I'll preface this one because I can vaguely remember what it was like before I had a special needs child and that world was part of my world. I was looking at it from the outside, and it just looked awful. And you poor sot, your kid has a disability. What a bummer. And I couldn't see anything more than that. And I think that's probably most people's attitude, and it makes people uncomfortable. It makes, they don't, they don't, know, how, they don't know how to deal with it. So when I say that having Tyler has been one of the great blessings 
for which I am profoundly grateful in my life. I'm not just putting a pretty face on something that really sucks. No, it actually is this really, really cool thing that happened to me that was just what I needed. And um, like I said, life brings what it brings, and you can fight with it and say, I'm supposed to go to Rome, or you can just dig Amsterdam. <laughs> and yeah. I am really digging Amsterdam, and I'm sure I'm digging it a whole lot more because I had those years of sitting and just practicing being with things as they are. Exactly. About It is about being with things as they are, not as you necessarily want them to be. Yes. There is... a. Uh, my son, uh, our son Jason, is uh, 33. He has intellectual disability and uh, autism. Uh, the, on the autism spectrum disorder, which people refer to quite a bit, uh, there is uh, there's the high-functioning Asperger's syndrome and there's the low-functioning. And Jason's more on the low-functioning side, also can't live on his own. He's got a really sweet disposition. I remember growing up and every once in a while, there'd be a, a kid in the class who had a developmental disability. We used to call it, you know, with other names. And we didn't refer to it as special needs so much in those days. And I remember just having an experience of compassion, not sympathy, but compassion, and feeling very protective of those folks. I never expected that I'd be involved in that world like like you it is life-changing absolutely what i didn't expect was that it would give my life a sense of meaning that i just it was it was almost impossible to imagine even now i used to think about putting into words i go yeah it's hard to imagine when someone is so who's no longer an infant and is so dependent upon you because he he lacks safety awareness, and your your primary purpose in life is to protect them and provide an environment for them to flourish in whatever way they can. There's a joy in that, and yeah, you know, my wife Denise, as your wife Sarah, extraordinary advocates for this population. And I, I remember Dennis and I just understanding that when you have a child who has self-injurious behaviors, you're there to protect them from themselves, and you just have to be absolutely present. So if you have an agenda, it's going to go up in smoke. It's going to disappear. You could hold on to it and think that, well, I've got something to do. I have somewhere to be. And you're quickly dispelled of that notion. So seeing things as they are, being with things as they are, is really the almost the only way to, uh, to raise a child like that. Who you knew? got to bring the love. <laughs> yeah. Ah, uh, yeah. So much we could say. How many hours do we have? We have days here. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this is you know we're part of a uh, we're part of a club that we didn't exactly sign up for, and then here we are. Yeah, right. Yeah, 
wouldn't have any other way. I think about, I think about um, historical ways of treating developmental disability. And in, in the, the extreme version is a lot of people through most of history, probably most people through history, simply couldn't afford to have a disabled person. They had to die one way or another, hopefully with compassion, but that's just how it was because they could not continue in their community. And I don't fault anybody for that. As we got into it, the industrialized age and there was affluence spreading around the people, we re retained the habit of doing that. And so there's just dreadful stories that we've all heard of how things were up until, well, maybe some places still, but um, I say all that dark stuff only because part of having Tyler and living with Tyler and loving Tyler as any father loves his son, um, as you were just saying, it's opened up a dimension to my life that I didn't even know existed. It wasn't just unavailable to me, I didn't even know it was there. A dimension available to all of you, you who are listening to this, that um, who you are as a human being, who we are as a people, as a species, uh, is much, much bigger than we imagine. And one of the ways I've opened up to that is for having Tyler in my life. I'm At the moment, I'm reading a lot about artificial intelligence and our race <laughs> towards this singularity or something when we'll, we will soon have machines as smart as we are. And that's really going to change the game a whole lot. And there's a lot of speculating on how that'll work. But when you talk about machines as intelligent as we are, you immediately have to say, what is intelligence? And there's lots of very thoughtful conversation about that. But Tyler is my touchstone th through that and thinking about that and wondering about that. Because what does it mean? I think I was just reading something this morning. If you get too much into the technological side, that computer scientist, then the very best parts, the, the very least definable parts of us that make us human could be regarded as just a bug <laughs> to somebody who's only thinking about bits and bytes. And maybe that's where it's going to go. And maybe I'm just stuck in a limited point of view, but I don't mind being here. Um, when you open up to somebody with disability, when, when they're part of your life and and... Love does this to all of us, because when you love somebody, it's going to shift you around. Special needs or not. That, um, what am I trying? I'm just, I'm pontificating here. Love opens us up. Yeah. Don't even have to do with the special needs. You accept somebody with special needs. You expect, accept somebody with a wart. You ex accept somebody who's fatter than you think somebody should be. And on and on and on. And you just stop caring so much and start digging people as they are. Because it turns out that this radiant Buddha presence that lives in you all the time, son of a gun, it's over there in you too. And <laughs> you too, that's those right. Those people too. <laughs> in fact, everybody I ever saw in my whole life. And then the game gets interesting. Yeah. And if folks, if you want the game to get interesting, open up to that. Yeah. You know, one of the things about, about Jason, that from the very from the early years was that he has no guile. He's got no ulterior motive. He, he has preferences, but he acts on impulse. So, you know, he gets in a car, he, he's not concerned about traffic. He has nowhere to go and no place to be. And yes. the time is not, is not a thing for him. He, uh, he, he likes to eat. Right, 
He's got a pretty clean diet. He'll drink water when he's thirsty. He'll lie down when he wants to rest. He'll listen to music. And he'll enjoy whatever he enjoys. But he has no, he has no guile. He's, it's not like he's trying to accomplish something or attain something. <laughs> so there's a lesson in that about just being. Yes. Right? And when he had, for years, he had really challenging physical, medical, you know, medical challenges as well as behavioral challenges. And it required us to sit with him in a way to uh, ease him through these stomach upsets or physical discomforts. And you can't be thinking about being somewhere else when that's happening. I remember someone saying to me at that time, said, you know, there's no extraordinary people in the world. Where there are ordinary people who learn to deal with extraordinary circumstances. Hmm. And I've often remembered that and thought, well, that's what this is. It's an extraordinary circumstance. And this is the opportunity for me to, in my own practice, be present, carry that with me, and be a stabilizing force, be someone who's just there and present. So we have this kind of mutual presence, communication back and forth. Fascinating, right? And I could go on and on. <laughs> it's, you know, yeah, it's something, it's different talking to, to another parent, right? We're part of a club that we didn't exactly <laughs> sign up for, but here we are. And, and I... You know, I see you and, and Tyler every once in a while. You see me and Jay every once in a while. But we just know what we're dealing with, yes. right? Yeah. So there's yeah. this, this thing of like, oh, yeah, I know this guy. Well, Tyler, um, yeah, I, I call him my Tai Chi teacher because he's very affectionate with, yes. with me and Sarah. Yes. He's, he's very shy with most everybody else, but... Um, he goes walking around the neighborhood, and our neighbors all know him now, and they compete with each other to get eye contact or a high right. five. Right, <laughs> right. It's very sweet. <laughs> but he, he, he loves to play on the computer. He spends most of his time just hanging out on the computer, playing different games. But every once in a while, he needs a little human contact. And since I'm home most of the time, I'm on my laptop doing writing or whatever. And he'll, uh, he'll get up and come wandering down the hall. And I can usually hear him coming. But it's uh, it's sort of uncanny. It's invariably at some moment, one of those moments that us modern folks all know when you just have to get this email off to so-and-so in the next few minutes because you know, the world will end if you don't. Right. <laughs> and so I've, I'm especially scrunched up over the keyboard, and he, in comes Tyler, and he, he sidles up silently behind me and puts his arms around me, and then he puts his head down next to mine cheek to cheek, and then he strokes the other cheek with his hand, says oh my friend oh my friend <laughs> and then we just take a breath together oh, and we just sit there for a moment two old souls and then he's had enough and he taps me on the shoulder and off he goes and now he's big enough now that if I resisted that at all Tyler just let me finish let me finish this he might hurt me because he, he's holding my head in his arms <laughs> I have to physically drop everything. So there's um, 
when I tell you folks out there in our listening audience that there's bennies that come with love for all of the pain, for sure. Uh, and I'm, I'm just very... F- Last story. Yesterday, we were at the beach. The one thing he loves besides the computer is warm water at the beach. Mm. You never saw anybody enjoy the beach. He just rips his clothes off and he goes running out and he'll just dance in the surf for hours and hours and hours. It'll knock him over. He doesn't care. He can swim. He just... He, he prefers if I'm there with him, but... So yesterday we're out at Carpinteria Beach, and he's just delighted playing. And he um, he works his way out past the surf line because he, he sees the raft out there. They have the rafts where all the teenage kids go and hang out and horse around. And he starts swimming towards the raft. Okay, so I go swim with him. He's taking his time. He's in no hurry. And we get out to the raft. And I say, okay, let's get up on the raft. And no, he didn't want to get up on the raft. He just looks at it for a while and looks at all, checks out all the kids and smiles. Starts swimming back. Okay. You tired, Tyler? You don't want to hold me or something? He pushes me. No, 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 no. And he's waiting for me to get it. And sort of halfway back to the beach, and I'm like worried. Is he going to be tired? And he's just looking at me. I look over. He's just looking at me. It's a beautiful, warm day on the planet Earth. The sea is calm. And we're swimming. He starts singing to me. He has all these little lines and little snippets of song from the various animated movies. And this one, and he was riffing off of it. He he did a mashup off of Monster Zinc, where Billy Crystal is singing, You and me, Manuel, <laughs> both of us together. It's one of our favorite lines. We use it all the time whenever we do something. But he riffed. He says, he's just looking at me, you and me, Manuel. Right here in the ocean, it's like, "Hello, Dad. Where I'm here. Where are you? Where are you? <laughs> I love it. Oh, sweet. Uh, yeah, kids like that love the water. Right? They mitigate the water well. I have so many wonderful memories of Jason in the water, in the hot pools. In dolphin therapy programs. Yeah, Tyler did that too. Yeah, talking to the dolphins, that common language. Beautiful. You know, Bruce, uh, for you and me, this is fantastic. For the audience, well, I hope they enjoy it. And uh, But this was just mostly for you and me, maybe, right? Just nice to see you again, nice to connect. And thanks for taking some time to just share a little bit about your, your practice and your experience. My pleasure. All right, love you, pal. I love you too. Thanks, everybody. Thank you.